Hello, and welcome back to the Star Family Wisdom Podcast. I'm Jenna Layden, your host and the founder of Star Family Wisdom. In today's episode, we are so lucky to have Paul Anthony Wallace back with us. We interviewed him in episode 20 last year when we were just starting off. And Paul Anthony Wallace probably doesn't need much of an introduction at this point, but if you are new to him and his work and this conversation around our evolving narrative and human history on Earth relative to ETs, his work might pique your interest. He is an internationally best-selling author whose books have probed world mythologies and ancestral narratives for their insights into human origins and our place in the cosmos. But what makes Paul really unique is that he is was a senior church man, and he served as a church doctor, a theological educator, an archdeacon in the Anglican Church in Australia. And his work in the church in Australia ultimately led him to finding some anomalies in the biblical texts and then ultimately probing those world mythologies to unearth a, a different, maybe more evolved version of our human story. And he has written a fourth book, the Eden Conspiracy. So we talk about that today in the interview, and we also talk about disclosure and what's going on in the world with disclosure. And, and Paul kind of recaps from his perspective the series of events that have led us to the most recent event of the UFO Congress hearing in the United States. And you can find Paul's information down below in the show notes. You can also check out his YouTube channel, the Paul Wallace channel, and the Fifth Kind TV, which are watched by millions worldwide. And there Paul explains more of his research and his findings. So this is a really fun episode, and I'm just so excited to share it with you. So without further ado, we'll get into it. And I'll see you on the other side. Welcome back to the show, Paul. It's so good to see you again. Good day, Jenna. Thanks for having me. So much has transpired since we, we talked last. It's been over a year. And in that time, our journeys have continued in really profound ways. You've written another book, which I'm really excited to talk about today. I have a number of questions about it that I'm I'm hoping will inspire the audience to to pick up a copy and, and dive into your your research. But before we get into the new book, I I want to just ask you for a brief recap of your journey and the previous three books that you wrote for anyone who's just catching up to this conversation because this is a big conversation and your your work has led us to a place where we now can see a very different picture of the human story and the biblical narratives and the narratives about God and who God is. So, so I'd love for you to just share about that journey you've been on and, and why you feel so inspired to share this different narrative of our human history. Well, 
people know me today as the paleo contact guy. And uh, paleo contact is the theory that in the deep past, our ancestors had contact with other civilizations, with extraterrestrial visitors. And my journey into paleo contact is from an unexpected place or unexpected to a lot of people. And that's the world of ministry. I was for 33 years involved in church-based ministry as a church doctor, a theological educator, an archdeacon for the Anglican Church in Australia. And it was really that middle role, the theological educator role, that got me onto this turf through looking at anomalies in the stories that we tell from the Bible or moral anomalies in the narratives within the Bible itself. And I approached this as a hermeneutics person. This was one of the things I would train pastors in. Hermeneutics is the principles of interpreting ancient texts. And so we would use tools like uh, source analysis, form analysis, and the fundamental question, what do the words mean, to try and get to the bottom of what the texts are really on about. And I was blessed with uh, an ultimate Frisbee injury some years ago which uh, invalided me out for uh, long enough to put some study to some questions that had fascinated me for a long time. And the questions that fascinated me included all the normal uh, mysteries that Christians wrestle with when they go in particular to the Old Testament. Why is the moral behavior of the God character so appalling? Right. It's probably the big one that a lot of believers and preachers struggle with. Why does God refer to himself in the plural? Why does he get into arguments with himself? Why do thousands of human beings get slaughtered when he changes his mind? This sort of thing. And looking into those questions took me into source analysis, which revealed to me the dependence of the Bible on source narratives from out of ancient Sumeria and the cultures that came from ancient Sumeria, Babylonia, Arcadia, and Assyria. And once I started reading those, I was confronted with the question, what does it mean that many of our God stories are based on somebody else's stories and that the somebody else's stories are not about God at all, they're about sky people, beings which you and I have a word for in the 21st century, which is extraterrestrials. And so I pursued this. Um, also in the back of my mind was this question of are we alone in the universe? And that question had really been sown in my very young mind when I was about 11 years old and I read Eric von Daniken's Chariots of the Gods. And I felt he had put his finger on our inability to explain ourselves as a species. How come we're the, uh, the alpha species on the planet when we're somewhat ill-adapted to the planet, where most of us, if we were left alone in the middle of the wilderness, after three days, three nights, we'd be either very sick uh, or in a hospital or deceased. How do we go from that to being the alpha species? It's through higher intelligence, higher consciousness. Where does that come from? And there's a gap in our ability to explain that. So all that was in my brain as well. But it was really the study of the root meanings of key words that revealed this other layer of story in the Bible. And the other layer it revealed was a summary form 
of the Mesopotamian stories of sky people. And I read that story. I recognized it. I could see it in the Bible. I could see there's this whole other narrative there that is not a God story. It's a story of paleo contact. And so my first book in the series, the Eden series, Escaping from Eden, results from that light bulb switching on and then me beginning to do a world tour, listening to other indigenous narratives and world mythologies that echo very unlikely themes in the biblical and Sumerian stories. And the explanation they give for human origins is very different from what you and I would have heard in school. And the different narrative of human origins has a different implication for human potential today. So that's the beginning of the journey. The Scars of Eden, the next in the series, then ask the question, so what? What difference does it make right. if our origins are in a God story or in paleo contact? What difference does it make to our development as a species, uh, depending on how we answer the question of human origins? And are there evidences in our geopolitics, in our psychology as a species that would point one way or the other? So that's the Scars of Eden. By Echoes of Eden, the third in the series, I'm beginning to recognize as I tour the planet that if we want really rooted, long-standing answers to these questions, the place to go is the world's indigenous narratives who have carried a memory of paleo contact from the time it happened until the present day. And in Echoes of Eden, I join the dots, I show those patterns, and then I also reveal that in every age, there's been an attempt by those who control the meta-narrative to extinguish this earlier human memory. There's always an attempt to delete and replace indigenous story with an official orthodoxy. And Echoes of Eden shows how that happened in Christianity through 2000 years. Now in the Eden Conspiracy, I show that that changing of the narrative is actually recorded in the pages of the Bible itself. And that the Bible tells us that ancient Judaism was a canon of paleo contact. And then between the eighth and sixth century BCE, certain individuals decided to change what Judaism was from a canon of paleo contact to a religion of monotheism. And the Bible even names the people responsible for making that change. So in the Eden Conspiracy, I show how that happened, and it gives us uh, not only a lesson in history, but eyes to recognize narrative change in the present day, and it answers the question, what was the Bible about then? Is it just that we read it and realize there are a few ETs washing around in the text, or are the stories about something completely different? And in the Eden Conspiracy, I show that it's actually a very rich education indeed in our place in the universe, in patterns of covert government, hidden hands in our geopolitics, stories about social progress. It's a very rich education until you start reading it through a God story lens. And when you do that, you get rid of so many layers you boil it down to this one strand the surface strand and you miss what it was our ancestors worked so hard right. to bequeath to us so that we could understand the world in which we live and potentially 
have a better experience on earth than they did. So that's the motivation. That's the journey. And that's a lot. That's a lot for people to, to take in at once, you know, as we think about this, this worldview change that it requires, you know, as we, as we process and integrate your findings and the, the incredible, you know, connections you've made across cultures, the corroborative evidence for what this new narrative is, that requires, you know, a major, major evolution of our psyche and understanding of our place in the universe, as you've said. And you mentioned there seems to have been a very deliberate mistranslation, suppression, attempt at forgetting this this ancestral narrative that is present in you know many of our indigenous cultures why do you think that occurred and 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 where do we go from here in in rectifying this this mistranslation of our history well i'll give two for instances one from uh, the history of christendom and one from the history of judaism so if we think about the history of Central and South America, it was um, invaded and conquered by the Catholic forces of Spain and Portugal in the 15th and 16th centuries. And they went in with letters patent, not only from the kings and queens of Portugal and Spain, but from the Pope as well, because the agenda is we're taking this territory for Spain and the church. And the generals who went in were military generals and bishops. And we have their uh, accounts from the day as bishops and generals wrote back to HQ saying how the conquest was going. The agenda was to take that land so that those who owned the land would own the people on it and they'd own the resources on and under the land. It's a very rich part of the world. So. There's the simple of agenda, simple agenda of we want more stuff. We want the stuff uh, in Central and South America. But in order to manage it and control it and have full spectrum dominance over the human population there, you have to control the narrative. So in today's terms, that would mean you would become the news agency. You'd become the police force. You'd become the judges the school teachers, so on and so forth. Well, they did all that. And that meant slaughtering the priesthoods that were there and burning all the um, uh, written culture that existed in that place. And there was still at that time the written culture of the ancient Mayans. So even though uh, the Mayans had been succeeded by other people groups in the time since. Their literature was still there. The Mayan people were still there. Guatemala was a Mayan country at that time. And yet um, the invaders felt the need to get rid of all that, to delete it and replace it with Catholic orthodoxy. So instead of the indigenous priests, and the remnant of the priests of the feathered serpent who carried the Mayan story, there would only be Roman Catholic priests. Instead of all that great body of literature that the uh, Central and South American cultures had curated, there would only be Bibles and commentaries on the Bible. So the idea is to replace what the people living there believed 
about themselves, their history, their potential. They would believe what the conquerors believed. And the teachers of that religion would be provided by the conquerors. And it's a very neat way of managing a society. If you've got God at the top of the pyramid, and then the kings and queens of Spain and Portugal, and then the priests who are inculcating that new worldview into the people and all the reasons why they should be good, compliant citizens. Mm -hmm. Now you've got full spectrum dominance. Right. And ultimately, it's uh, with an economic end uh, in view. We want to run that part of the planet because we want the people resources, the mineral resources, uh, everything that grows there, we want to harvest to enrich our empire. So right. it's an economic driver. Right. Something similar happens between the 8th and 6th century BCE with ancient Judaism, that we go from a place where, if you read the books of Jeremiah and 2 Kings, we're told openly that the uh, tribes of Israel remembered, commemorated, with thanksgiving, a whole body of advanced beings which they would refer to as the Tseva Hashemayim, the armies of the sky. And so that would include Yahweh, but it would also include Asherah, Dagon, Baal, Baal, as he was known. And they would have carvings, installations, temples, commemorating all these beings. And that's how they lived, Asherah being the most popular. Jeremiah tells us that on every high hill, under every green tree, in every place they lived, from every fortified town to every garrison city, Asherah was being commemorated. And Asherah was the female entity who the ancient Jews acknowledged as the one who enabled their ancestors to make the great leap forward, to learn farming to go from being foragers, hunter-gatherers, to farmers, city builders, civilization builders. And it would seem that she was the most prolifically commemorated entity in ancient Judaism. However, you get to the 8th century BCE, and you've got a king who is a Yahwist. He believes only in Yahweh. He believes all the others are distractions unwelcome why should his people worship different beings to the one he worships his high priest is a yahwist and they decide to rebrand judaism as yahwist monotheism and so what that meant was we have a king called hezekiah for instance and he sends his armies in to destroy all the carvings in the jerusalem temple commemorating the tseva hashemayim he also destroys the Nehushtan, which is a carving showing what the Yahweh character actually looked like, because obviously there was some kind of a problem around that. So all that gets done. There's a ritual reform, which means no more commemorating these other beings. And so the standing stones marking where the ancestors met them, they're pushed down, demolished. The temples where people would take their thank offerings to these other beings they're demolished. The altars in those places broken. The horns of the altars broken off. The figurines of Asherah that people would hold at times of festival 
were seized, had their heads broken off so there could be no more Asherah festivals. And essentially what's happening is all the other priesthoods are being shut down. So there's only the Yahweh's priesthood in Jerusalem. All the other temples where people would go for Thanksgiving, but also for information. They would each have a consulting room, a divination room. No, we now call that idolatry. So we're going to shut all that down, get rid of the priesthoods, destroy those temples. And once we've done all that, all that will be left is the one temple in Jerusalem, the one high priestly family, the one monarch, all of them. And to be a Jew now means to fall in line with all of that. Didn't happen all in one hit, but it began with King Hezekiah and the high priest Hilkiah. And then it continued under Hezekiah's grandson, Josiah, also a Yahwist, and the royal scribe, Shaphan. And it finished off in the 6th century BCE with high priest Hilkiah's descendant, Ezra, now enforcing Yahwist monotheism with the new book they'd put together, which is pretty much the Bible as we know it, the Old Testament as we know it. And hey, presto, you've got a theocracy. One king, one high priest, one temple, all the tithes of the nation now coming to Jerusalem. All the official news about who we are, our past, our present, our future, our place in the cosmos, all coming from Jerusalem, from the one high priestly family. And so, again, it's a matter of full spectrum dominance. We want a neat pyramid shaped society with God and the king at the top, control of the narrative, control of what people believe. And it's a shift made for very similar reasons to the ones I described in the invasion of Central and South America. But it happens within Judaism itself. And the Bible tells us the story, which is really, for me, the incredible thing. That's the thing I really shine a light on in the conspiracy, that this is done in plain sight. The Bible is not dishonest about this. The story is there, but we haven't always preached on it and shown openly what the story is, because we felt a pressure to agree with everything the narrator of the Bible tells us, rather than processing the information that he's sharing with us. Right. Mm, it's, it's, it's a lot to, to take in and process when you think about that, that colonialism that occurred across the world and this attempt at many of our ancestral narratives you know being demolished changed but the beautiful thing that i'm you know reflecting on now is that we didn't lose all of those narratives and in your work in the eden conspiracy you you open with a story about the queen of heaven and you mentioned Ashra um, and the role of this feminine being entity, non-human intelligence, it seems, who, who played a different role than the vengeful, angry, somewhat psychotic Yahweh. So, so it appears as though we have many different types of powerful ones or ET beings um who interacted with humanity so i'd love for you to share a little bit more about the queen of heaven and and what you've learned about her her role intervening 
in human history because we have on you know one hand this very traumatic beginning you know to modern human history with the Yahweh character and the violence that came with that interaction but then it also appears as though we have these kind beings who are interested in our development and you highlight that and you highlight some of the ancestral memory that has survived to this day yes that's right uh, i mean i was really um puzzled when i first read the book of jeremiah and jeremiah says that the uh, the the uh, tribes of judah disparaged yahweh they remembered him and remembered him negatively. They discarded his laws. They spoke slightingly of him, but they remembered Asherah with affection. And Jeremiah says that and then sort of adds, isn't that awful? And so you think, okay, that's what I'm supposed to think. It's awful. But why? Why did they remember Yahweh that way? Why did they remember Asherah? in this fonder way well the the yahweh end of the equation is answered quite amply by the narratives of the bible in which we see what life was like under his governance it was very violent it was a constant state of war and terrorization and abuse mm -hmm. and now we go to the stories of asherah and it's well she's the one who helped us she's the one who nurtured us and what interested me about the Asherah storyline is that, as you say, her memory has persisted despite every attempt to extinguish it. I talked about all those figurines having their heads broken off. Even the way the Bible references Asherah, it's always in a very demeaning kind of way, as if she's no more than some um, unnecessary household item. <laughs> But you join all the dots, you realize there's a big story there. I, I opened the Eden Conspiracy in Brazil to show just how persistent the memory of Asherah and what she represents really is, because the festivals that the uh, tribes of Israel would hold to honor Asherah in the uh, 7th, 8th, 9th, 10th century BCE, those festivals even though there was this attempt by the Jerusalem guard to stamp them out, still happen around the world today. And I encountered them in Brazil in the 1980s when I went to an event in uh, Pernambuco in Brazil. And I thought I was going to something I understood, a harvest festival, I was told. All right, I know what one of those is. I thought we used to hold them when I was growing up in England, that means you bring some spare tins of food to school or to church and we give them to the poor as a way of thanking God for the harvest. Well, I got to Pernambuco and found that harvest festival there means something different. And my uh, Brasileira was not very strong at that time. So I was really having to work hard to understand what was happening. I could see it was a festival. There was singing, dancing food in all the squares, food derived from corn, savouries, sweets, drinks, beers. And I asked questions to get my head around it all. We're thanking the Queen of Heaven, I was told, for the gift of corn. Hmm. All right, okay. So I went along with that. The Queen of Heaven, that's Mary, isn't it? I thought that's what the Roman Catholic school, Jesus' mum, Mary. 
and they're hand, <coughs> handling these figurines, which they're going to carry into the church for the midnight mass, figurines of the Queen of Heaven, all made of corn. And I begin joining the dots, and I'm thinking, wait a minute, this is thanking the Queen of Heaven for the great leap forward, when our ancestors suddenly learned how to cultivate corn and all the foods that come from corn. But Jesus's mom wasn't in Brazil <laughs> right. 10,000 years ago, giving lessons in agricultural science. So something's not adding up here. And it was only as my young theological guide helped me to process all this the following day that I realized this wasn't a Christian festival at all. It may have culminated in a midnight mass, but it was explained to me that the Pope of the time, John Paul II, was doing his level best to get rid of everything that we'd done prior to entering the church. Because everything we did prior to entering the church was, in his view, a pagan festival. Mm -hmm. It was a commemoration of a queen of heaven who is not Mary, the mother of Jesus. And it took me years to realize I had just experienced the same festival the ancient Jews did when they honored Asherah, also called the queen of heaven, also thanking her for the great leap forward, also with singing and dancing, foods made from corn, also with handheld figurines, also with incense. It was exactly the same thing, commemorating the same moment in human prehistory. The same name is being used, the Queen of Heaven. And so in uh, the Eden Conspiracy, I show that it's not just in Brazil, not just in the ancient Levant, but that this memory extends all around the planet. And very often, the beings credited with our Great Leap Forward are female figures. So it's a female figure in the Nigerian story told by the Efik people of Abasi and Atai. It's a female figure told by the Zulu people in Southern Africa, Mbabwana Warisa. In the Mayan tradition, it's a female figure of Hun Hunapu who teaches the same thing. And I was quite excited to realize that this global story of the Great Leap Forward, which is a fascinating moment in our development, is one of those gaps in our ability to explain ourselves is remembered not just by um, indigenous cultures outside of Christianity and Judaism, it's there deep within Christianity and Judaism. Once you start reading it with an open eye, realizing this is teaching us something beyond monotheism, valuable though those insights may be, there's other information here. And uh, in my research, I was... Um, I'm not sure what the word is, but pleasantly surprised to realize that the memory is extended into Eastern Orthodox Christianity. And if you visit an Eastern Orthodox church and you see um, an olive tree in a uh, narthex section of the church campus, what you're seeing is a continuation of the commemoration of Asherah, albeit very secretively, somewhat covertly, but it's there in the tradition. Mm. And it makes you, you know, wonder if this, if this attempt, this, this, this help that came from Asherah across the globe, you know, came after Yahweh's actions to potentially extinguish humans. You know, what do you make of that connection between these sky people? Because it, 
it, you you start to highlight this this drama you know that's playing out between the sky people between these sky councils between these et you know beings or races whether it's multiple races who have their own drama playing out but then they also have this interaction happening you know with humanity so you know where where do ashra and yahweh connect you know what's their relationship what do you make of of that that's a great question because in um archaeological finds items have been retrieved that suggest that yahweh and asherah were seen as peers sometimes there's a suggestion they may have been each other's consort they're revealed as rivals in second kings and jeremiah were they part of the same incursion were they all part of the same arrival of the tseva hashemaim i actually suspect that Asherah is earlier than Yahweh. Yahweh appears in a story in Deuteronomy chapter 32, in which he is one of many Elohim, one of many powerful beings, who are having land and people allotted to them. So the senior powerful one, El Elyon, is giving each one a bit of Project Earth to manage the land, the resources under the land, the people on the land. And Yahweh gets short shrift. He gets a people group with no land. So he then has to go and retrieve his people group from somebody else's land. That's the people of Egypt. And the Elohim there is Achech, who governs the people of Egypt. He has to get his people out. And then he has to send them to war, so he reckons, to get land of others so that they're on somewhat more of an even keel my uh, perspective on that is that the people on the land are already somewhat progressed that we've got farming societies happening mm. already by the time of deuteronomy 32 and so the input that had turned us into farmers was a prior input mm. And so I would suggest that Asherah and all these positive memories of nurture are older ah. than the memory of Yahweh's arrival uh, in Deuteronomy 32. And then the story that plays out from that when he meets Moses and says, I want to get your people group out of Egypt because you're mine. I think that comes much later. Mm. It's not easy to draw a timeline because I think we've been visited so many times by so many different demographics with many different agendas. And the stories we have now have conflated a lot of that um, to turn it into a coherent story. But I think we're looking at interventions that run over more than 200,000 years, because 200,000 years ago, that's when Homo sapiens extends back to. So there's some mm -hmm. upgrade that gets us to there. I think that's an intervention story. Then we've got an intervention 10,000 years ago that's attested to around the world. I think Asherah came in between those two times. So if you listen to the stories of Aboriginal Australians, we're listening to a story that takes us back 60 to 120,000 years ago. And they describe their moments of great leap forward. And so it's in that window that I think the Asherah story belongs so maybe fifty thousand years earlier than the yahweh stories really begin 
that that makes sense and it, it makes sense too that that would give people this whether it's totally conscious or not this subconscious memory of what kind loving intervention looks like versus what they then started to experience with Yahweh which maybe helped people you know re reject that um that that way of leadership and and you you talk about the the i guess perception of jesus and you know jesus or jesus's perception of yahweh and and you know what jesus taught what jesus commented on in regards to yahweh and as i've thought through you know some of your your you know commentary and your interpretation of this it's you know appearing to me that jesus was a part of some mission to help shift humans consciousness to a place where they would be able to understand the difference between the god jesus spoke about versus the god humans were being told to worship so can you talk to us about about that and jesus's perception and and, and what you know what he was attempting to you know, in part on people related to, to Yahweh. Yes, because um, at some point in the history of Christianity, uh, votes went a certain way that meant that we glued the Hebrew scriptures onto the apostolic teachings. The bias of Christian believers through the ages has been to read this as a story of continuity, to think that the uh, the God figure of the Hebrew scriptures is the same God that Jesus is teaching. If it's all in one book and it's all God's book, of course you're going to think that. But go back to Acts 15 and you'll realize it's a story of discontinuity. Acts 15 was when the apostolic leaders of the primitive church realized that faith in and obedience to Yahwistic law, Yahwistic narratives was not the foundation for Christianity. That was the decision they made in Acts 15. That decision would have been impossible if they hadn't believed that Jesus had taught a discontinuity between Yahwism and what he was on about. So we really have to go back and reread and think very hard because we've had 2000 years of teaching saying continuity, continuity. But look in John chapter 8, when Jesus says, if you knew my father, you would know me. If you love my father, you would love me. Your father was a murderer, a liar, the father of lies. What I am teaching you is something unknown to you. And he says this when he's having an argument with the religious leaders of Judaism at that time. But he also teaches it when he's having a perfectly peaceful conversation with his apostles at the end of John, where it's clear that when Jesus talks about God and the Gospels use the Greek word theos, the New Testament never mentions Yahweh by name. Jesus talks about theos, pater, abba, abba, means well, it's a cross between sir and dad pater or patros means father theos is an ultimate god concept it's a greek word and the apostle paul unpacks it 
when he says, by theos, I mean the source of the cosmos and everything in it, that in which we all live and move and have our being, of which we are all offspring. So this is the language Jesus uses. And again, he says to his apostles, this is something unknown to you. Thomas says, well, show us the Father, because he fully realizes they don't know who and what Jesus is talking about. Show us the Father. And Jesus says, well, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, because I've come from the Father. And again, when he's talking in a more uh, pejorative tone to the teachers of Judaism, he says, before Abraham was, I am. My roots go further back than that. I've come from the Father, and yet you don't accept me, he says. So there's this discontinuity. When Jesus does refer to Yahweh, uh, to a Yahweh story, it is very often to uh, subvert the theology of his hearers, to use their theology against them. And there's a moment in which he says, um, what kind of father if their children were hungry and thirsty, would give them a stone or would give them a snake. And to the modern reader, you'd think, oh, gosh, that's a pretty perverse scenario to dream up. Of course, no father would do that. But the original hearers knew that Jesus was referring to a Yahweh story in which the children of Israel are starving in the desert uh, Yahweh has provided them with emergency rations of something called manna, which means we don't even know what it is. When they want water, he gives them a stone and says, I'll give you some instructions so you can work out how to get water from the stone. This has gone on for quite some time. And the children of Israel are saying, we don't want any more of this. This is just exhausting. We are hungry. We're thirsty. We're fed up of these emergency rations. We'd rather be back in Egypt living on someone else's land as someone else's slaves and continue with this. And as a punishment for asking for better rations, Yahweh sends snakes to bite them. And many of them die. Many of them are made sick. And their only chance of recovery is to kowtow to the Nehushtan the image, the bronze image of Yahweh, if you follow the logic of the story, that's what that item is. And so this scenario, what kind of father would give hungry and thirsty children a stone or, or a snake? That is the Yahweh story. And Jesus is mocking the idea that Yahweh could be considered any kind of father and then goes on to call him a liar, a murderer, the father of lies and identifying that with the God and father that the Jewish religious leaders are teaching about and worshiping. So that's a pretty emphatic discontinuity he's teaching there. And then in the gospel of Matthew, Jesus is presented as a counterpart to Moses. So a counterpart to Yahwism. Moses said this, I say this. Moses allowed you this, I say no this yeah. and so it's not a continuity he's a counterpart you can either have moses and yahwism or you can have jesus and what he's bringing and acts 15 makes that clear choice we're going with jesus and we're leaving moses behind and that really is the narrative of early christianity which has become distorted through the ages and we've sort of mm -hmm. gone back to a uh, a view that the apostles 
rejected and that Jesus rejected back to a view where we have to worship a violent deity tiptoeing around him lest we should offend him on pain of eternal conscious torment having done so and this is psychologically a very damaging way to live yeah. whereas you see discontinuity and you fully realize what Jesus meant when he said he'd come to set the prisoners free yeah and it appears as though if Jesus is this counterpart, this equal to, to Yahweh, potentially just as powerful, right? We know Jesus was a powerful being. We know he performed many miracles. Does that make Jesus a sky person? What do you think about that? Well, I've concluded that we are all a bit of a blend and that uh, homo sapiens we are earthlings with something of our wider cosmic family in us as well mm. so many of the ancient stories including those in the bible suggest there was some kind of gene manipulation in our development as a species that meant that we've got um, some gene splicing that's happened between us and some of our more advanced cosmic cousins so we're all hybrids we're all cosmic beings. But then within that narrative, we have stories of what we might call indigo children or star children, where there's something anomalous about the conception and birth of those children, where there's some other intervention that's made. Now, this is past a, part of Christianity because we have the virgin birth story right. regarding Jesus. We have the supernatural conception of his cousin, John the Baptist. And those two stories are stories of close encounters with non-human beings. And following the close encounter is this conception and then the birth of a remarkable person, Jesus, John the Baptist. It's actually an echo of the story of the birth of Isaac from the Hebrew scriptures in which a couple who can't have children because they're too old experience a close encounter and then suddenly sarah is pregnant gives birth to isaac and it's the beginning of the human story in a completely new way and these stories of um artificial insemination or um artificial fertilization belong not just to judaism not just to christianity you'll find it in the east as well so in the stories around Vipassi Buddha, the 22nd incarnation of the Buddha before Siddhartha Gautama Buddha, the story of the Yellow Emperor would be another example, the story around the birth of Lao Tzu. They are all very, very similar. Mm -hmm. Close encounters, uh, something anomalous in the conception, and then this remarkable person who helps advance and progress the human experience. Uh, people might say well look you've got a remarkable person who's done something remarkable you have to create a remarkable backstory to explain why they were so different well yes you could read it that way except that these narratives of anomalous births anomalous conceptions are far more widespread than just international vips and there are women around the world today who carry stories like this very, very privately, not a story that they boast with, not a story they even tell the whole of the wider family. But I've met 
women who will say, I have four children, and the third is the one who's very advanced, who's incredibly sensitive, who has memories of other lives, or who developed incredibly early, who's always had a fascination with uh, the human condition, with our place in the cosmos, who comes out with this incredible, profound wisdom, and there was something different about his birth, or her birth, or her conception. And these stories are held so privately, you might not realize it's part of present experience, as well as the stories of these greats in the past. So I think this adds up to the fact that we've always been in contact. We've always had support. We've always had help. We've always had interventions. Mm -hmm. And we have stories that um, ensure we don't forget it. Right. And you mentioned earlier the incredible persistence of these stories. So, for instance, between 1880 or the 1880s and the 1980s in the United States of America, in Canada, in Australia. So that's three separate independent countries. Yet somehow for the same period, they all ran the same policies, stolen generation policies illegalization of indigenous ceremony policies because they were attempting to stamp out narratives of contact, narratives of ancient contact, uh, narratives of higher human potential, modalities by which to release them. Same 100-year period, try to stamp it out. If we can stop initiation for four generations, we'll have killed the thing stone dead, was clearly the intention and yet somehow the stories have survived so that today a writer like me can go around the world, listen to elders of indigenous cultures, hear the stories and begin to realize it's the same memory. It's the same cosmology. It's the same anthropology that you can hear in Hawaii or Australia's Northern Territory or in Southern Africa or in Greece or almost anywhere on the planet. The moment you begin listening at the folkloric layer and the moment you listen to that with an open ear to it being something other than fiction and fable i want to back up for just a moment and highlight something you you referenced in um your your last explanation there around this idea of some humans having this potential right to be extraordinary humans to access higher levels of wisdom supernatural abilities like jesus like some of these other um super humans who have walked the earth and in some of your previous books you talk about this idea of an an inhibitor being placed on our dna potentially by yahweh and, and his group and and, and what that has done for us, what that has kind of, you know, it's kind of handicapped us as humans in a lot of ways. And, and you, you very briefly highlighted this, you know, idea of ceremony and, and initiation being a way in which we can undo that inhibitor and, and, and activate that, that latent potential that's within us. So I'd love for you to talk about what you've learned there and 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 what is possible well the language of uh, the inhibitor 
uh, you can actually find in contemporary neuroscience, scientists who study a phenomenon called acquired savant syndrome use that language to explain how it is that a brain injury or a central nervous system event can accidentally unlock higher cognitive abilities. Now that runs totally counter to our evolutionary explanation of ourselves. How can there be higher cognitive abilities in our brains in the off position that can be knocked on by accident? So neuroscientists are fascinated by that. They're studying that question. Meanwhile, you go to the world's indigenous narratives and our elders and ancestors have an answer. And that is that we all have this potential we all have higher potential. We can all engage uh, future viewing, farsight, better telepathic connection, better self-healing. And indigenous cultures around the world have shamanic protocols, mystical protocols, all aimed at switching these back on for us. So the role of the shaman isn't to be better than us, it's to help us be better than this and reactivate all these abilities. And for an example of a, a, um, a world mythology that speaks about this very graphically, I loved the Mayan explanation of this in the Popol Vuh, where the uh, invaders who are called the progenitors, or those who engineer, decide they want a workforce. And so they say to each other, let's engineer uh, human beings to do the heavy work for us and bring us our food. And so the chief genetic engineer, Kukul Khan, aka Kukumats, aka Quetzalcoatl, is tasked with this. And it's a long, slow, painful process trying to create Homo sapiens. And there are lots of cul-de-sacs, dead ends that don't quite work out. Um, engineering beings that are very capable but have no interest in serving others so that would be like engineering a gorilla finding it's very capable but has no interest in bringing you your afternoon tea your paper and your slippers which clearly would be the case <laughs> and uh, we're told that the experiments result in the ape-like creatures who live in the forests but then ultimately they lead to us through a little bit of gene splicing and they get a homo sapiens who's a bit too advanced. Us plus, us plus better remote viewing, better precognition, better telepathic connection. And they find us impossible to manage. How can you manipulate people who know what you're thinking? How can you ambush people when they know you're coming? And there's a bit of that story to the invasion of uh, lands through uh, human history. How do we uh, get rid of that ability? Well, we attempted it through a legalizing ceremony for a hundred years. The progenitors in the Popol Vuh come up with another solution. We will limit their vision so that instead of having future sight, far sight, X-ray vision, they'll only be able to see what's right in front of them. They'll be limited to their five physical senses. For everything else, they'll be dependent on an authority telling them what's what. We can work with that. We can manage people like that and so to limit our vision they release a vapor over human populations that will brain damage us to the point where we can only see what's right in front of us and when i read that i it put me in mind of the 1970s when journalists around the world were saying 
our children are being brain damaged by gases in the environment that are in the pollution that comes from gas guzzling cars and trucks. And the research was showing that children who grew up in homes and were educated in schools surrounded by idling traffic were less intelligent and more aggressive than people who grew up in fresh air. And initially, this was just an absurd conspiracy theory, but these very courageous journalists ran with this story. It was real scientific research. And finally, the case became overwhelming. And it's why today we drive cars with lead-free fuel, because it was the lead in those gases that was dumbing people down. And so I could think, well, in my own lifetime, I've seen this, you know, vapors in the atmosphere brain damaging us. And here we've got a story that's possibly thousands of years old saying this was done in the past to dumb us down so that we could be managed. And it echoes in other stories as well. The, the epic story from out of Nigeria tells a very similar story of devices being released to toxify the environment so that we would be sick, anxious, mentally unwell, so that we could be managed. So it's quite a widespread story. But there's kind of a silver lining to it. The positive take home is our DNA wasn't re-spliced. We weren't altered at that level. Our environment was changed. And the positive take home is if you can get your environment clean, clean air, clean water, clean foods, you put yourself in a place where you can begin operating at a far healthier and more conscious and more intelligent level. And it, it connects with uh, shamanic protocols, which very often uh, require you to fast mm -hmm. before you go through the ceremony so that you cleanse your diet before doing the protocols to begin switching yourself back on. And the agreement from culture to culture on all those fronts leads me to suspect, once again, this is something other than fable. This is something other than fiction. This is something very real pointing us to how you and I can unlock our higher human potential and have a better human experience. And no better commercial. There's no better commercial, I think, for, for getting healthy, you know, and investing time in, in, in cleaning up our diet and exploring these initiatory practices if we have this potential to, to become a, a higher version of ourselves. You know, what, what an incredible thing, you know, for us in this lifetime to be able to have an awareness of and actually take action towards. And I just want to appreciate you, Paul, because in our last conversation last year, in talking about this, you know, I'd already been on the shamanic path for, for a while and um, engaging in, you know, various practices, but it, it really, you know, kind of triggered for me this this desire to to take that all the way and to 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 deactivate you know the the inhibitors you know that have been placed on um on our potential and so so i want to thank you for for that inspiration oh thank you i'm, I'm glad you're <laughs> running with it it's very oh, exciting it's, it's been great and i can i you know i can say you know when we when we do engage in these you know initiatory practices absolutely you know we we start to have a different, you know, sensory, you know, experience of, of reality. It's, it's really, really incredible. Um, you know, I, I want to, we're going to wrap up in, in a few minutes, but I, I want to kind of jump ahead to, to modern day and, um, 
and, and talk a little bit about, you know, what's going on with disclosure in the world. And, and I'm in the U.S., you're, you're in Australia, and in the U.S., we had an, an interesting event recently in our Congress. There was a, a UFO congressional hearing, uh, and many people are, are aware of, of that outcome at this point. But I'm curious, you know, about your, your take on the information that was shared around craft being retrieved, around biologics, and you know, what other information you've stumbled upon um, that that might just give us, you know, a better understanding of what's to come. You know, in your Eden Conspiracy book, you talk with um, the head, the former head of, you know, Israel's space security, um, Haim Ashed, and you you talk about some of the information he's revealed. So, we, you know, it seems like we're getting more and more information on many fronts these days. So, so, so I want your take on, on the UFO congressional hearing and then um, you know, maybe any insight you'd like to share about um, the information you've gleaned from Professor Ashad. Well, there's been such an interesting acceleration uh, of disclosure in the last six years. Uh, it's it's a, a level of disclosure that hasn't happened before in my lifetime, that's for sure. And so I think we could probably go back, well, let's go back to the early 2000s, because up until then, most uh, governments, and usually it was in their departments of defense, had units that existed to investigate <clears throat> UFO encounters. And then they started shutting those offices down. And many of the people who staffed those offices were then allowed to create a campaign for declassification and disclosure. So that got my attention, uh, well, nearly uh, 20 years ago now, because why would governments let that happen? Right. Why would they let their own former staff campaign for disclosure of information that they had been privy to and that tells you straight away there's interesting classified material the public might like to know about yeah and then in the years that followed that there were some interesting little moments so we had the moment when the united kingdom changed her extradition laws and relationship with the united states of america in order to protect a uh, we could call him a whistleblower, uh, Gary McKinnon, who had been able to hack NASA computers and find images and text that suggested there was collaboration going on between us and a non-human presence. And to have all that discussed in Westminster was <laughs> mind-boggling. Now, they very carefully didn't discuss the credibility of that information or the implications of it they just said no the usa cannot have gary mckinnon in prison for the next 60 years and would even go to the extent of we're changing our relationship with the usa to avoid that happening so that just kept all that in the news then i think it was 2008 prime minister dmitry medvedev prime minister of russia um said 
on a live microphone, which I'm quite sure he knew was live, to a journalist that every new prime minister of Russia is given a dossier detailing the spacefaring civilizations with whom we are already in contact. You can probably find that on YouTube and ask for yourself what you make of it. He doesn't sound like he's joking. And his president, President Putin, didn't come forward and debunk him or distance himself. No official statement saying we don't agree with the prime minister's views. It had a few too many vodka, nothing like that. It was just left there hanging. And then um, 2017, there's a big change because that is when Chris Mellon, the former Assistant Secretary of Defense for Presidents Clinton and George W. Bush, leaks the footage of the 2004 USS Nimitz encounter with a Tic Tac craft. So that's uh, what we now know was an official leak. It's confirmed two years later in 2019 by the Pentagon. Yes, that footage is real. And yes, we've had a unit in place for more than 70 years investigating UFOs and examining physical materials from UFO crash retrievals. This is now the Pentagon saying that, that that is real. People might not have known how to take that. And when the leader of that unit, who'd been leading it for 10 years, Lou Elizondo, starts making statements, people think, well, I don't know how to read him. I don't know if that's really on the up and up, except that you've got the former chief of French intelligence saying, yes, that's on the up and up. I was there when the most recent iteration of that group was convened. And yes, that is its work. And then you've got very eminent, very well-respected physicists such as Jacques Vallée and Eric W. Davis saying, yes, and we've been examining the materials and we've been briefing this body. We've been examining materials from, here's the phrase, um, off-world vehicles not made on this earth. <laughs> Crumbs, I think we all know what we're talking about, don't we? So that's all the background to Heim Ashed, Christmas 2020, stepping up to the mic. Now, he, for 28 years, was the chief of Israel's space security program. So it's his job to know if we were in contact. And he said, evidently on the basis of his privileged information, that his understanding is that we've been in contact for a very long time with a number of spacefaring civilizations. And it's not just contact at a covert government level, it's collaboration. And that we are supporting our visitors' research projects on planet Earth, whatever those might be. And that those research projects are happening on Earth and on Mars, that America's involved in that collaboration, and so is Israel, and probably some other world powers as well. So this is incredible because you can't uh, wish to find a more credible credentialed figure than Professor Brigadier General Haim Ashed to make those statements. That's only one degree different from the president of the country stepping forward and saying this is the case. Right. And that's the background to David Grush in 2023 saying, yes, we have materials. We have craft. We've had contact with craft and their pilots, these non-human biologics. 
what a word salad that is. So <laughs> non, non-human non beings is what we're right. talking about. Now, Grush's credentials are absolutely beyond reproach. In terms of protocol, he's gone through all the correct to bring this conversation into the public. He has the permission of the uh, Inspector General of the Intelligence Community to do this. And what this has created is a moment where Congress is a bit offended that uh, military intelligence won't share their intelligence (laughs) with Congress. Now, I don't know if one should ever really expect military intelligence to share what they know with Congress. Um, I'm sure there are things enshrined in the National Security Act 1947 and other legislation since that kind of gives them permission to do that. But there are enough members of Congress who have the noses put out of joint that they're not allowed to know these things. And that's really what's been revealed by the David Grush complaint, that uh, groups that have been set up through all the democratic structures to get disclosure and not being allowed it. So I don't know how far this story will roll. It might roll no further than revealing that the Pentagon has information about non-human pilots and where they've come from that it's not willing to tell. And if it goes no further than that, that's interesting enough. Right. But it, it may go further because I do think there's a groundswell of support for greater disclosure, greater declassification, people who are citizens of the United States of America may be annoyed, not that members of Congress are being denied information, but that their own presidents are not allowed to know these things. And can you really feel that you live in a democracy when that's the case? So I think there might be a popular groundswell of saying, no, 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 we're going to keep this rolling because we, the public, want to know. Yeah, I think people want to know. I think it's, I think it's, it's time you know there's there's been such a an in, yeah an interesting you know narrative on social media and and out there since this this event with the ufo hearing that you know my, my gut tells me we the ball will keep rolling in in that direction but it, but it also makes me think of something you documented in your book when haim ashed was given the question well, how many civilizations are out there that are interacting with Earth? He declined to to share because he, he basically said, you know, hu- humans aren't ready for that level of information yet. So, yes. you know, what do you know about that? And and yeah, I guess what's your personal opinion on are we ready? Are we ready to know the the, the full truth? Yes, um, I think we're ready. Uh, I mean, the most recent polling in the U.S say says that around 60 percent of the population if you were to tell them we've been in contact for 70 years would say i'm completely unsurprised i'd already worked that out and i think the fact that it has been over decades and decades suggests there's a stability to the current arrangement that we're not going to have that war of the world's blind panic when we're told we're in contact People are working it out. People do want to know. And I think our only hope of um, intelligent engagement with our neighbors 
is when there's some kind of accountability to what's going on. I want to know in whose interests decisions are being made mm. uh, on this body, what Hamer Shedd calls the Galactic Council. In whose interests are decisions being made and who's making those decisions? Yeah. And are our visitors only talking to politicians? Because that would worry me. Are they only talking to senior military people? Because that would worry me. Are they interested in the rest of us? Because I would hope so. And my research for the Echoes of Eden suggests, yes, they're interested in the rest of us. Yes, they're communicating with far more than just military VIPs and political VIPs. We have friends in high places. I think there's a great spectrum of visitors, far more now than when our ancestors were writing the Bible or writing the Sumerian cuneiform tablets. Interestingly, when Dmitry Medvedev was asked the same question as Hayama Shed, how many are we in contact with? He said exactly the same thing. Well, I don't want to say that. I don't want to panic people, he said. I'm not sure the number would panic us necessarily. <laughs> right. I think the reassuring thing to know is that among the many who occupy the Galactic Council are friends, that there are those who are here because they're very interested in Homo sapiens and they think we're wonderful and they love us and they want to continue nurturing us as they did in the deep past. They want to continue protecting us as they did in the deep past. And my hope for a happy human future is really through our relationship with those beings, those at that end of the spectrum. And the fact that it's been a fairly stable arrangement for so long suggests that their help is very significant and worth keeping a hold of. Mm. I think that is a beautiful and hopeful note to end on, Paul. Um, this idea that we've got helpers out there we've got friends we've got allies and and you know maybe maybe they're they're working with us slowly behind the scenes to help us through this this transition this this period of evolution to the point where we can we can join their ranks <laughs> one day um so thank you paul for your work your just beautiful intentions of you know, holding what is sacred and, and divine, you know, about our experience and our reality with this, some of these hard truths of our humanity and our, our history on this planet. Uh, your work is so, so important and I'm just so, so appreciative for it. So thank you for being with us today. And if people want to connect with you, work with you, how can they get in touch? How can they find you? Sure. Well, you can find my video material at fifthkind.tv. You can go to YouTube and watch The Fifth Kind on YouTube and the Paul Wallace channel on YouTube. I'm in the comments every day. So for a short conversation, you can find me there. For a longer conversation, go to paulanthonywallace.com. That's Anthony with an H, Wallace, W-A-L-L-I-S, paulanthonywallace.com. If you'd like to do coaching with me, go there as well, and we can get into a longer conversation. Beautiful. Thank you, Paul. And, and thank you, everyone, for tuning in. We've got his links in the show notes. So check that out below and, and pick up his new book, The Eden Conspiracy. If you haven't read the other ones, they are incredible. Get those too. And um, I'm looking forward to another conversation at some point, Paul. Thank you for being with us. And um, everyone, thanks for tuning in. Comment, let us know, you know what resonated and what 
your thoughts are on these these major major events and changing narratives on the planet. <laughs> and we'll uh, see you in our next episode. Bye for now.